And we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 6 today for the sermon, and you can follow along in the bulletin where that's printed, or turn there if you have a Bible with you. It's a pretty famous story we're looking at. It's uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and um, that's dramatic enough, but he did it miraculously without any food, or almost no food. Um, every one of the four gospel writers includes the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it gets more ink in the New Testament than the raising of Lazarus from the dead, or the prodigal son story, or the wedding at Cana. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 gets uh, a lot of attention. John has a big long section afterwards, sort of a sermon that was based off of it and his gospel. Why do you suppose it's so important? I mean, there's, there's a Jewish factor to any miracle, right? We don't see things like this, that Jesus fed 5,000 people plus without hardly any food. But there's more going on than just the idea that he was able to do the miracle. It's in a section where he seems to be really pushing on his disciples. These people are going to follow him and be on his mission. Um, he's turned the screws on them. He just sent them out on a mission trip. But a weird one. It was like almost destined to fail mission trip. Um, they didn't have much of a message because they didn't know much. They went out and told people to repent, but they couldn't take any money. They couldn't plan for it. They couldn't take extra clothes. It was, uh, it was designed to put them under stress, right? And so they just come off of that, and then they're going to go on a retreat, which is what happens in this passage. And... Um, their retreat gets interrupted by this huge crowd of people. It says 5,000 men, so presumably, what, 15,000 or so people. Um, 5,000 men, and their retreat gets interrupted, and they're out there in the evening in a desolate place and don't have anything to eat, and Jesus tells his disciples, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And I would think at this point, you know, they're starting to feel some exasperation, like, what's he doing to us? Like, why? Um, he keeps giving us things we can't do to do. And um, I don't want to talk back to Jesus, but like, what am I supposed to be doing here? This is strange, and I don't know how I'm supposed to think about it that much. And apparently, the point that Jesus is trying to sort of drive home for them, and for us too, is that um, if you're a part of my mission, nothing much is going to happen unless I show up and do it. Like your talents and gifts and wits and money aren't going to matter very much, but me showing up and doing what I promised to do is going to matter a lot. And you need to get used to that being the scheme of things in your life, right? That you're dependent on me. And what you want to see and need to see happen in your life um, is stuff that I can do that you can't necessarily do unless I answer your prayers and come help you. So depending on Jesus... Uh, matters immensely in the life of a Christian. Some kind of active dependence on him. Somebody asked me a question years ago that, I don't know if I love the question, but it at least frames the subject for us. It said, do you have anything in your life right now that is hopeless unless Jesus shows up? Do you have anything going in your life that's hopeless unless Jesus shows up to help you? Now, you know, I... I don't like the question because I think if we could see better, we'd know that almost everything in our life is hopeless unless Jesus shows up. But is there anything that has your attention that way that makes you think about what it means to be dependent on Him? And uh, let that question kind of frame your thoughts as we read the Scripture. I'll pray first. 
Father, please uh, help us. We're here uh, because we want and need to know you. And so we ask that you would come speak to us and open our hearts and minds to you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 30 in Mark 6. He says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Apparently it was about a four-mile boat ride and about an eight-mile walk or run. It says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Uh, Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, um, pretty dramatic events there. Um, It seems like, if nothing else, Jesus is pressing on the disciples to clue into who he really is. Right, you know, it, it feels like maybe because their perception is slow, like he's slowly pulling back the curtain to let them know who he is. You know, they think he's the Messiah, but they're still not real sure about a lot. And so he's letting them know this. Um, he's not doing it so they can have the right opinion about God. And, well, that's important enough. It's important to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But the way he's doing this is he's saying, I want you to know who I am because that's going to matter a lot for who you are and how you live. Like, knowing who I am is going to transform the way you think about your life and is going to like actively reshape how you approach your life day to day. And he's sort of kind of giving them both sets of information at the same time as he goes. The who I am part of it is uh, full of Old Testament references and things here. You know, where he's, you know, the, in Moses, out in the wilderness with God's people, uh, being told to feed them and not having any food, and then God provides the manna from heaven. Right? It's pretty reminiscent of that. And then Jesus sees the crowd and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And when Moses was uh, finished with his tenure and handing the torch over to Joshua to lead God's people, he said they need a leader so they won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And then, as all the new elders love so much, Ezekiel talks about how what a waste the uh, shepherds of Israel are and how uh, badly they've done feeding themselves instead of feeding the sheep. 
That's when you get the passage we read in the Old Testament reading today where he says, I'll come and I'll be the shepherd myself and I'll go find the lost sheep and I'll feed them myself. And here he is uh, sort of laying claim to say, look, I'm the one who feeds my people. Uh, God, whom you have depended on in your lives as uh, Jewish believers, is now in your midst in the person of Jesus. And you are going to look to him the way that you have looked to God all along. That's who I am. And uh, he says that, which is pretty dramatic. Um, But then he says, and if that's true, your lives can't be the same anymore. Like, you can't, you're not going to have as an option for yourselves anymore to be practical deists. You know, a deist, someone who believes there's a God, but isn't too worried about it, thinks the God's pretty distant, isn't going to bother us much. It's like, I have the opinion that there's a God, but I pretty much live my life as if there weren't. It doesn't matter. And, you know, you see that a lot, and you probably experience that a lot. Uh, as somebody with faith in God now, like sometimes it's just a distant category for you to believe in God. But Jesus is saying, it's not going to be like that if you're going to know me. It's going to be a pretty active sense of dependence on me day to day. Uh, you're not going to be able to live a deist life anymore. Um, something's got to be going on in your life with me where you feel a little bit urgent about praying. You know, something that's got you scared enough to where you'll actually pray. Uh, with some seriousness. And also, something has to get inside you about who Jesus is so that you'll have some ambition that goes beyond your talents and wits. And I, to be connected to him in, su- in such a way that you expect things to happen that go beyond what's natural and what you can do and that scare you enough that you'll pray a little bit. And so that's what we're going to think about, uh, kind of looking through the disciples' eyes at what's going on here. Like, what is going to be true of them? What kind of fruit is going to be in their life because of who Jesus is? Right? As God in, uh, in their presence. How's that going to shape their lives? And um, first thing is they're going to have a life of more compassion. More compassion. Um, they were going on this retreat and the crowd shows up which kind of ruins the whole retreat thing, right? And they're tired. They just came back from their mission trip. But when Jesus sees the crowd, what does He say? Verse 34, He saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so He gave His time to them again. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, I don't know what the disciples are thinking. I'm guessing as they're rowing, they're seeing the crowd. Like, I don't know. (laughs) They're going to get there before we get there. Great, nice retreat. This is going to be great. I would be annoyed if there was a crowd that showed up at my retreat. Um, I'd probably be a little bit angry. I'd be a little despising of the crowd. Uh, when Jesus saw them and started teaching them, I probably would have pulled them aside to say, Hey, I've been reading this book about boundaries, you know, and, and self care. And I think maybe that this is a time when we need some new time. And uh, that's not. Apparently how Jesus looked at it, maybe he hadn't read those books. Um, But he looks at the people, he looks at that crowd like he looks at us. And like he looks at his disciples, those people who need compassion. Um, Not people who deserve compassion, but people who need compassion. They're sheep without a shepherd. And um, he takes pity on them. Um, Put it in modern terms. He sees the people at the MAGA rally 
and the people at the abortion rights protest. And he doesn't find himself annoyed by them. He doesn't despise them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd and has compassion on them. I said it that way to try to provoke you to see that compassion is not our uh, knee-jerk reflex instinct most of the time, right? Vilifying and despising is more our knee-jerk instinct. But he has compassion on people who need Jesus. And the idea is that when we realize that we're people who need the compassion of Jesus, when we look at other people who need the compassion of Jesus, we don't say, gross, I hate them. We say, oh, at worst, they're sheep without a shepherd like me. And uh, my instinct towards them should be like Jesus' instinct towards me, which is compassionate. Not condescension, but recognition. You're like me. Compassion is, should be my response to you. And um, that's very different for me, I know, uh, to, to think of people that way, to think with compassion but they're just as useless and hopeless without Jesus as I am. And so it's pretty weird for me to be condescending, right? So here's the thing. Um, if you get discipled by Jesus, he makes you more compassionate. If you get discipled by the TV news and your social media feed, you get more angry and condescending and vilifying. And so the question when you look at this is, uh, who is discipling you? Who is discipling you? So compassion is the first thing that uh, Jesus is trying to produce in these followers. The second is a life of humility. Um, And the humility here comes uh, from the way he deals with feeding them and the bread. Bread in the the Bible is always kind of a sign of God's provision of life for us. um, But it's always kind of funny because it's manna first. Right? And the thing about manna is you only get one day's worth. When they tried to store up two days' worth, you remember what happened to it? It rotted. Right? So one day's worth. So that means you eat today with the manna, but you don't know about tomorrow. And so you have this sense of what we'll call dependence on God for manna tomorrow. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus calls this daily bread. He doesn't say, give us uh, this day a unassailable 401k. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Because we're meant to have a sense of day-to-day dependence on God to provide for us. Which is totally humiliating. I don't want to have a day-to-day dependence on God. I want to have a general respect for Him, but handle every contingency myself with my resources. That's how I would like it to work. I'm an American. I like self-reliance and I like independence. I mean, I stand up and salute those values and virtues, and Jesus doesn't. He's not a big fan of self-reliance, not a big fan of independence. Um, He may not want us to be submitted to tyrants, but he wants us to be submitted to him. And so that's a big thing that's different to learn. Like, if you're going to live a life of humility, a life of dependence on him instead of a life of independence. And bread is kind of his example of this for us. We're all wards of the kingdom, totally dependent on the largesse of the emperor, King Jesus. Right? Every day, he gives us our bread. 
Uh, so when he feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, nobody is super proud that they provided the five loaves of the two fishes, right? Yeah, it turns out that was actually my loaf that he used. Yeah, it's pretty great. I'll be signing autographs later. You know, no one's very impressed with you for bringing the five loaves. It's like, whoa, <laughs> did you see what he did? Right? It's, it's, to serve Jesus doesn't aggrandize you. Like, that's not part of his plan. It aggrandizes him, not you. And so that's part of what you sign up for. One reason we pray before meals is to humble ourselves and say, God, I know you're my provider. Uh, I know Costco had a bunch of this and they got more and there's still some money left. But I believe that day to day you provide for me. And that the reason I have any resources at all is because you provide for me. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm providing for myself. So we have a habit, a discipline of praying before meals, most of us. Interestingly, when Jesus prayed for this meal, you know, gives the Jewish blessing before a meal, which probably is familiar to you, but just think about it in this context. Blessed be you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who causes bread to come up from the earth. And then 5,000 plus people say, Amen. And then they say, Whoa. Right? Who causes the sovereign king of the universe who causes bread to come up from the earth? And then they're all left to say, That's him, right? That's him, which is amazing. So we make attributions because Jesus provides for us and we're dependent on him. Uh, the New Testament says things like, What do you have that you haven't been given? With the expected answer, nothing. You don't have anything you haven't been given. And that means that you can't like rank people anymore. You have to be humble. When you look at people in need, you can't say, well, I've done well for myself, and you haven't done well for yourself. Which is the natural way to think, right? That's how I normally think. Now, Jesus says, what do you have you haven't been given? You're dependent on him. What you have, you have as a gift. Everything is gift in the Christian life. And so that undermines our condescension towards people in different circumstances or our envy towards people in different circumstances. We're supposed to be humbled by having to be dependent on Jesus. But then the last thing I want to mention is that the disciples are supposed to have a life of boldness uh, because of their dependence on Jesus. They're supposed to have some ambition and expectations that go beyond their wits and their talents and their money. And it's weird... Hard to understand why being humbled and dependent completely on Jesus makes people bold in their lives. But it's supposed to. It makes people bold when they are humbled by being dependent on Jesus. And it's because you wind up with confidence that He can do and will do things uh, that you don't expect and can't control. You get confident in Him. And it's weird because our culture tells kids, you can do anything you want to do, you can be anything you want to be, you know, and boy, if there's something you can't do, if we all do it collectively, we can sure do anything. And the same culture says, so now be extremely careful all the time. Right? Here, put on this helmet and pads before you play that board game. You know, it's like terrified culture that says, you can be and do anything. And so people aren't very bold, even though they're told they can do anything. Jesus comes and tells us, you can't do anything. Without me, you can do nothing. And that has the paradoxical effect of making us 
extremely ambitious and bold. I was like, that. you know, one hand, I don't have anything to lose because um, I'm taken care of. And the other, he does pretty amazing things in the world. And, you know, I may just have five loaves and two fish, but I've seen things, you know. And um, so I kind of have an ambition and expectation that would surprise you that I have because just to look at me, you wouldn't think, right? I mean, that's kind of how that works. If the sovereign Lord who brings bread from the ground has promised to provide for you, well, what do you have to lose? You're going to be okay. You can take a little risk here and there. Um, a minister from Atlanta, I think Randy Pope, um, said this, and it was another one of those statements that made me think a lot, and I wasn't sure what I thought about it. But he always said, and this is pretty bold for Presbyterians to say, we're, we're not like a super ambitious bunch. And uh, he said, you should attempt something for God that's so great that it's doomed to fail unless He's in it. You like that? Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail unless He's in it. And uh, I thought, that, that at least sounds like the right mindset to have for a Christian. Doesn't it? Like, um, that we shouldn't just look at our own resources and talents and think that's the limit of what we can do, but we should be asking for God to do things that are beyond us, and we should even be trying things that are beyond us, uh, hoping that He'll uh, make it work. I mean, that's kind of the life of faith, isn't it? But I wonder, like, are there any things in your life that kind of scare you or make you uncomfortable that you're trying? Like, is anything in your life that you're doing as a Christian that makes your parents uneasy? Um, we used to... We did. Somebody somewhere had uh, two extra baptismal vows uh, other than uh, the three we ask parents now. After the three, we asked them about, you know, do you know your child needs Jesus? Do you, um, do you um, believe God's promises on their behalf? Do you dedicate them to God? Then they would ask the parents, do you promise that if God calls your child to serve him at a distance, that you won't stand in their way? And, uh, you know, when you're young, you think, oh, that's a good vow. And when you're a parent, you think, well, I don't like that vow. <laughs> I don't like that one. I promise you won't stand in their way. And then the last vow, which was pretty metal, said, uh, it's, uh, if God chooses to bring this child home to him before you, do you promise not to complain against God? Oh, you can see why we don't use those vows anymore. So uh, <laughs> we're kind of lower at the bar. Um, but... Yeah, anything where your parents have to say, oh, I guess if you're going to do that for Jesus, it's okay. But I sort of wish you would just become an actuary, you know. Um, or anything you do that makes your insurance underwriters uncomfortable. I don't mean riding without a helmet, Tim. <laughs> but are things that you do in your life because you know Jesus that are risky, that... Uh, makes other people uncomfortable. Is there anything like that going on? Do you ever give away any scary money? Like money you needed? Ever give away money where like, if God doesn't provide for me, uh, I'm going to be in a little bit of a mess here and I'm giving it away anyway? That's that. That will make you pray. You know? That will get your attention. Get, dry up a little saliva in your mouth. <laughs> make you a little nervous. But like Jesus said, you're supposed to lay up treasure in heaven. And 
if he isn't really preparing a place for you in heaven, and if there isn't a new creation you're going to live in, it's stupid to invest your money uh, in the future when you're going to need it now. But if you live a life of dependence on him, you think he really is providing for you, you can give away money that you don't think you can give away. And pretty good for you to do it sometimes. It'll, uh, again, it'll, it'll make you pray a little bit. But you can be generous because the sovereign king of the universe has told you he'd provide for you. I mean, that's the logic of this. You can risk failure because Jesus has sent you out. And if you fail, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. He sent the disciples on a mission trip, you remember. He gave them instructions for when they failed because they were totally going to fail. Yeah, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Like, wait, how about if I come back if I fail and then you give me that information? Why are you telling me that up front? That's a little bit moralizing, right? And, uh, but, you know, it's okay if they fail. And actually, I'm not good at this. I don't think my crowd of Presbyterians is very good at this kind of thing. When people start talking about how your Christian life needs to have more of the element of the supernatural in it, where you're actually actively depending on God and trying things and doing things that seem foolish to reasonable Christians because of your faith, Christians get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable. Um, but some things help. Like for, for me, uh, doing a church plan helps because you know, there's a whole lot of contingency in it at least. It's, it's enough to scare me. You know, so I'll pray a little bit in a church plan because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to make it happen and can't see. Uh, I think uh, Ryan and June Lynn know about this too because they did this in Hermosillo and, you know, lived and died and worried and wondered and watched God at work. And, but having something like that in your life is good for you uh, as a Christian, right? Something that will make you pray a little bit. Put yourself out there a little bit. Um, you know, make a play for the sake of the kingdom. It's okay if you fail. It's fine if you fail. It may be a little embarrassing. People may say, I, I knew you were an idiot when you tried that. Uh, you should have listened to me. Say, yeah, okay, whatever. But Jesus says, you feed them. He says, go, I'm real. You know, my promises are real. I'm really here for you. I really love you. I'm really going to back you up. Make a play for the kingdom. You know, the, the bad part of that is the contingency. You don't get to control anything hardly. But the fun part is, when you put yourself out there with some faith, for Jesus, he usually shows up and will really amaze you. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the kind way you deal with us. Um, we get the benefit of watching the disciples and lots of your saints throughout history to try to sort these things out for ourselves. And uh, we would love to have active living faith in you. Um, a sense of the supernatural, a sense of uh, suspicion about what you're doing around us. And so please do that for us. Uh, that kind of faith seems to please you. We ask that you give it to us and work it into us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We prepare to come to the Lord's table. Uh, please stand if you're able and let's confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed. Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now please be seated. So we're all in some sort of process uh, in regard to the Christian faith. Uh, some of us have been Christians for a long time, but we're hoping to grow and anticipating the next life. Some people are very unfamiliar with the faith, just kicking the tires and looking into it. And um, The way things work is you become convinced of the Christian faith, and then you put your faith in Jesus and become a Christian and are baptized into the church. And then you come to the Lord's table. Uh, which is a sacrament given to us to reinforce our faith, to reassure us of our faith. So uh, on that journey, if you're not yet a convinced Christian, don't come take the Lord's Supper yet, but we'd love to talk to you about uh, what it would mean to get to that place. If you are already a convinced Christian, then come and be reminded that what Jesus did for you on the cross is everything you need for your life with God, uh, and your trust in Him is everything you need for your life here on earth. So um, come be reminded of his goodness to you and his promises. Now let me pray. Father, thank you so much for what Jesus Christ has done for us. That Instead of despising us, you have had compassion on us. Uh, thank you for the good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. Um, we ask that as we come to remember that at the table, that you would encourage us in our faith and let us feel our forgiveness and let us feel how solid our hope is. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to our Lord God. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, Jesus also took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So drink from it, all of you. And therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Alleluia. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the peace. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come take them, remember what Jesus has done for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith. Now come and eat. <laughs> 